It's The Rest Is History. Hello. I am Frank Skinner and welcome to The Rest Is History. Whenever I hear that Sam Cooke song where he says he doesn't know much about history, doesn't know much about biology, doesn't know much about science books, doesn't know much about the maths he took, I always think, you know, Sam, that's what's wrong with the modern world. People wear their ignorance like it was a badge of honour. Not Frank. I also don't know much about history, but I'm very ashamed of that fact, and I intend to put it right. Aiding me in my task is our historian in residence, Dr Kate Williams. So, Dr Kate, who's learning with me tonight? Well, tonight, Frank, we're very lucky to have author Emma Kennedy and comedian David Baddiel. So, can I ask, uh, just to begin, what, what would you say were your um, historical credentials, you two? I'm quite old. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I am quite old. I was doing a gig. I do a show at the moment, which is sort of about my life in showbiz. And um, during the half-time, someone tweeted me, clearly a younger person in the audience, said, I'm really enjoying the show, and thanks for helping me with my GCSE history. <laughs> so, clearly, my career goes back quite a lot longer than I thought. Wow. Yeah. It's good that you're on the syllabus. <laughs> What about you, Emma? I fell asleep in my history A-level. During the actual exam? Yes. What did you get? I got a C. I was supposed to get an A. Although, one of my books is now on the syllabus. You see? Yes. Well, Not on the history syllabus, on the English syllabus. Oh, well, that doesn't count. We're not interested in English. No, there'll be be some overlap. Uh. Don't worry about that. um, This is a, a true story, a historical story. In the offices where my management is, there's a place called Operations, where it's the sort of engine room. Mm. And I went in there many years ago, and they had these big cardboard tubes for the posters, for the big tour posters for all the comedians. And all these things were standing on their end, all these um, cardboard tubes. And I walked in, I didn't notice them, and I knocked about six of them over, and they fell over flat, made a terrible row. And I said to myself, oh, God, this is what happened when I went to the Parthenon. And... (laughs) And nobody laughed except this one girl in the corner who I, I could tell got the joke and she laughed. And um, that woman is now, has been my girlfriend for many years and is the mother of my child. Oh. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was we were, nice, but really, it just shows you. Thank you. Really, it just shows how pleased Frank is to get a laugh, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I thought that's, that's all I know. It's a good audience. Anyway, let's have our first round called Kin Hopeless in which we look at hopeless kin of famous <laughs> historical figures. I know I was in the National Portrait Gallery and I saw a really bad painting of the three Bronte sisters and it was by their brother, Bramwell. Mm. Now, marks on the painting clearly show that it had been folded into four, which suggested that not only was Bramwell a lousy painter, but also that he hadn't got his head around the concept of rolling up. <laughs> What do you guys know about the Brontes? Well, well but Branwell. Branwell. I, 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 I think the, the girls, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, well, those were the famous ones, weren't they? they I think they had some others. There was the more, I only know. Some others, they all died, though. Like, they're, they're all very I mean, tragic, the Brontes. Drop, so there are down others. like flies. So Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, I think they were under the impression that Branwell was some sort of artistic genius I, th- I think that that was a commonly oh, held yeah, belief in the family yeah, I, I, but he was a complete loser he was an alcoholic well, no, he, he was, was also an opium addict yes he was absolutely addicted to laudanum uh, but he was 
thought of, I do know a bit about the Brontes, he was thought of uh, as, he was the apple of his father's <laughs> eye. Patrick Bronte was their dad. Thought Branwell was the real genius. Mm. This is, that is, someone because, who, is that because of attitudes to women in the 19th century? What, was he their only son? I think he was, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you go. I think so. The yeah. amazing thing mm. about the um, painting is that, and that's if he did this, but he apparently was in the painting originally and had been painted out. <laughs> and, and quite badly. There's like a pillar in the middle of the three sisters. It looks like he's got a paint roller and just gone down the canvas. Like, you know that moment when they're being beamed up in Star Trek? It looks like Branwell is being beamed up and he's just disappeared. So if Branwell did that, then it must have, he must have been like ashamed of their superior talent. I don't talent. think he, he came. He was, too, he was just drunk all the time. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, what can you tell us about uh, Branwell and his sisters? Branwell was the family name, and were, he was the only boy, as you say. There were three sisters and this one boy, and everyone thought he was great. Did they you say Branwell was the family name? It was, a, it was a name that had been passed down, used by the family before. Oh, OK. So it, that's what, it is a bit of a strange one. But, you know, Branwell, everyone thought he was this genius, as you say. Everyone thought he was great. So, and he was, he was not very successful. So they said he was very handsome. He was, you know, a gentleman-like appearance. You know, the girls went off writing and they were, you know, making these amazing stories. He had a few of his poems published in local newspapers. Oh, OK. For the first one to be published, of all of them, in the local paper. But the in general, he's this kind of guy, he was a bit of an unsuccessful man, really. There was a, there's a shortcut, pretty much, in the house in Haworth to get to the chemist so he can get his fix of laudanum. Oh, he set dear. fire to his bed, mm. and so his father had to sleep with him for safety. And towards the end of his life, he was begging Hang on a sec, can I just... Can we just, can we just <laughs> Go over rewind. that again. Right, rewind. Yeah, so, he set fire to his bed. He set fire to his bed. How did he do that? Because he was so drugged out, he right. basically fell asleep with a candle on, okay. on right. there. Yeah. So, yeah. So but my thing is that if one of my children <laughs> set fire to their bed, <laughs> I don't think I'd say, well, I'll sleep in that bed as well. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd be the best bet. I, you know, I, I, I think I'd get different blankets. Flammable proof blankets. So his father had to sleep with him. And by the forever, end of the, for the rest of his life. He was absolutely... The, he, but he was the apple of his father's eye, but wasn't he? He thought he was fabulous. Patrick thought he was marvellous. Didn't even send him off to school. Sent the girls off to school. And, of course, we all know that school for the, the Bronte sisters was this awful experience yes. that uh, is fictionalised in Jane Eyre because everyone died there. So he was kept at home because he was just too much of a genius to go to school. The fire in the bed, did that inspire the fire in Jane Eyre? <gasps> Possibly I suppose they'd heard fire did. before. He had an illegitimate child, possibly. He had an affair with oh. a... He became a personal tutor to the Reverend Edmund Robinson's young son, and then a, less than two years later he was dismissed for having an affair with a wife. So he was a reprobate, he was had he lots was of women. He was a wrong one, wasn't he, He Kate? was a bit, and I think what really finished him off, really, in 1847... Basically, all of his sisters published bumper novels. So all three of these big novels, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey, all come out in 1847, mm. and then he dies in 1848. I think it just pushed him over the brink. Wow. Because they all died sort of in their 30s. They all, they, well, uh, Charlotte lived to 38, so she's the one we always think is living the longest, and she yeah. only made it to 38. Yeah, Emily died at 30, and Anne died at 29. I bet, I bet Anne loved him, though, because wouldn't she be known as the rubbish Bronte <laughs> if it hadn't been for well, Bramwell? She, she, at the time, I think she was 
was the most successful one. Yeah, but as we've seen at the time, they judged it quite badly. Generally. Yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> he was the star. I, I think. I think. Tenant, I think. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. I thought Jane Eyre was the most sold successful the most, one. didn't it? Jane Eyre was the biggest seller, but there yeah. were some very bad reviews, particularly of Wuthering Heights. It got some terrible reviews, and this is the worst thing. So Emily Bronte's dying. She's really dying, and Charlotte says, "Oh, I know what to cheer you up. I'm going to read you some of those really bad reviews to make you laugh." Really? What a thing to do to it's an It's true, author. though. People do do that. Yeah, they know. People do do that. I, like, if you try and avoid bad reviews, <laughs> someone often very close to you will ring you up. Like, I, your best friend, in my case, often will ring you up and say, <laughs> not necessarily him, will say, I thought it was disgusting what they said about you in the Daily Telegraph Day. You don't look like Daniel Radcliffe's homeless uncle. <laughs> They will say. It's true, you can't avoid bad reviews. I love that Charlotte Bronte was told about a bad review by, was it Emily? Emily Charlotte thought Emily would find it really funny in her dying days. That is so like something that would happen now. So poor old Bramwell, he was an alcoholic, he was a drug addict, and he was hugely in debt. And as you say, they didn't really earn that much. Being an author wasn't very well paid. And it really wasn't until after they died that they became, they started selling lots of copies. So it was a pretty sad life for Bramwell. This is what happens when you're the apple of an eye. Probably I should... Basically, I was right about Bramwell. I had this vague sense that yeah. he was the loser with three talented sisters, yeah. and that was absolutely correct. It wasn't just a vague sense. He's the one no one's heard of. That might be the other. Well, I heard of that. him as sort of, you know, Ringo Bronte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out to be right. <laughs> and now the round I call What Else? in which I look at a person from history who I only know one thing about. This week, Stanley, the man who said, Dr Livingstone, I presume. Oh. So, do you know anything about Stanley other than the fact he said Dr Livingstone? I, I, I don't, don't even know his first name. Stanley. <laughs> it would have been a I bit hard that people Stanley, were saying. Stanley. Yeah, it's like hard. Neville Neville, I believe. I think he was, perhaps he was like Lulu, he just had one name. <laughs> But one interesting thing is, did he actually say Dr Livingstone, I presume? Because that's an interesting thing that you're saying, which is if Stanley had actually gone to find Dr Livingstone, he must have thought, well, what am I going to say when I find him? I know, I'm just going to say this really throwaway thing. It's going to be great. Now, how many people did he say Dr Livingstone, I presume, to... (laughs) Before that bloke yeah. said, yeah, yeah, yes. I knew. Because yes, lots of them me. must have been not Dr yeah. Livingstone. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I'm not. Well, I wonder how many explorers he was passing, just, yeah. just generally. Because there, there were a lot of them about, weren't there? There's no Google days. image. So where did he say well, that? I mean, well, it was in Africa. Africa. Yeah, but yes. Africa, that's a big place. So. so I think they were looking for the source of the Nile. Right, OK. And no. I think it's generally accepted that Dr Livingstone discovered the Nile, isn't it? Is it? But I don't know why, but I think there was some controversy about what Stanley found. I think that Stanley, and I could be completely wrong, I think he went to find Livingstone. Livingstone was in Africa. He was a, wasn't he a missionary? I think he was. I think he was spreading... What what was his position? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, Dr Kate, are are we anywhere near now? I think what we've established so far, I think he was in Africa deliberately looking for... um, it was a sort of a where's Wally but with added <laughs> malaria. <laughs> so Livingstone's out there, he's this explorer and he's also a missionary, but he's not very successful because he only ever converted one African chief who then lapsed pretty quickly afterwards due to apparently the temptations of polygamy. 
<laughs> that's it. Get so, you every time. Yeah, Uncle. every time. Yeah. So he was, he was this missionary, and he thought, I know, I'm not doing that well at being a missionary, so I might go and search for the source of the Nile. So he wanders off searching for the source of the Nile, and then he gets lost, and no one's heard from him. So he, he disappears for five years, and... Uh, Obviously, this is at home. Everyone gets really excited, like, where's Dr. Livingstone? It's kind of the big mystery. So Gordon Bennett, who is this new... Sorry, stop Gordon Bennett. Gordon Bennett. Gordon Bennett. Gordon Bennett is a real man, and he was actually a newspaper magnet in New York, and he was this guy who, you know, he lived big, he lived at large. So I bet had... I know what Stanley said when he met him. <laughs> well, Gordon Bennett... He said, I've got this brilliant idea to, to really get newspaper front pages. Let's go and find this missing guy in Livingstone who's gone completely AWOL. So he sends off Stanley to go and find him. So Stanley goes on this mission. So 700 miles, eight-month trek, five of the men with him died, and then he found him uh, in Uji near Lake Tanganyika. But did he go up to him saying, Dr Livingstone, I presume? The problem is that he didn't. But everyone thought he did. Everyone at home laughed at him for the rest of his life for saying such a stupid thing. So when, wow. so when Stanley found him, yes. did Livingstone come back to Britain? No, he said, I'm not coming back. I'm going to stay for another two years. And then he died. He died in Africa. So it was all a bit of a hopeless publicity stunt. It was probably quite, it was quite messy, wasn't he? Because he'd have said, hello, I'm, I'm Stanley. And he would have said, well, is that your first name? And he said, <laughs> are you like Lulu? And he'd have said, no, no, no. <laughs> I actually have a recording okay. of, oh, okay. of Stanley. So this is the real man. I am deeply obliged to the Lord Mayor for his warm appreciation of my service. My principle has been followed, followed, fixed, whatever as I write that, fighting to win his own country. He lost did his he, teeth. Did he? <laughs> Do you think he walked up to Dr. Livingstone and said, <laughs> What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, Dr Livingston, I presume, is just what Dr Livingston thought he was saying. Yeah. I'll have a shot at it. <laughs> that recording, where did you get that recording from? Just off it's, the net? It's, it, no, it's a, you can get a CD of voices from the past. <laughs> I, have, I have not made that up. Can you? So, do you sit at home of an evening and put that on as like background music? Yeah. <laughs> It's all right. It was terrifying. It's like the sort of thing that, you know, when you hear poltergeists, I mean, not in real life, but yeah. when people say, here's a recording of a poltergeist, yeah. they sound like that. Yeah, but that's the, the great thing about the early recordings. They're a great leveller. <laughs> so what happened, what happened to Stanley afterwards? Well, Stanley comes back. Everyone laughs at him for saying Dr Livingstone. And then he, he, he's being sent off on these missions. So he got sent off three years later to go and trace the route of the Congo, thanks to newspaper money. And then Leopold of Belgium, this is when he starts to get a bit less good. So Leopold II of Belgium says to him, oh, I've got this really good idea, the Congo, right, which you know well. I think we should send off a scientific and charity set-up, an international African association, and, and bring Western civilization to the Congo in a nice way. And would you help me? Comic relief. Yeah, it wasn't, didn't really work. So as we know, the history of Belgium in the Congo is pretty brutal. And unfortunately, Stanley managed to spread sleeping sickness across Central Africa oh, because Stanley. of his big baggage train. So he had a lot of baggage. He had a big entourage. I think it's a bit harsh that Stanley came back, having said <laughs> Dr Livingstone, I presume, and people laughed at him for the rest of his life. I mean, 
you know, what about Nick Clegg? You know, there are people <laughs> who do much more embarrassing things than that and don't get it's laughed at. It's not that at. bad an opening yeah. line, is it? Yeah, well, well I suppose laugh? it's like that girl on Big Brother who said, I love blinking, I do, and she's never lived that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so that uh, seems a, a fair summary, is that he did go to find him. It was, he deliberately went to find Livingstone. Livingstone didn't really want to be found, but he probably didn't say Dr Livingstone, I presume. Uh, so often on this show, the one thing I know is wrong. <laughs> it's not fair, is it? not fair. <laughs> And now for a round called Solid Citizens, in which we look at the story behind the statue. I was once wandering around Paris when I saw a statue of a man called Lamarck, and the inscription on the plinth said, in French, obviously, founder of the doctrine of evolution. Now, I was certain that that title belonged to Darwin, so who founded evolution, Lamarck or Darwin? I mean, you can say what you want about the creationists, but they've definitely reached a consensus on who started the ball rolling. <laughs> so what, what do you... Have you even heard of Lamar? I was really astonished. I've heard of, I've heard of Lamar. I've heard of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't him. I've heard of Mark Lamarck. Yeah. Um, but, but it said... I mean, completely boldly, it said the founder of the theory of evolution. So, so the premise is that he preceded Charles Darwin and that Charles Darwin, did, did Darwin copied off him. Did, well, Darwin nicked it. Well, I don't, I don't know that. Maybe um, Lamarck evolved into Darwin. <laughs> yeah. The way that when... Patrick Moore evolved into Professor Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> when, when was he born? And Do we know that? And died. I mean, it'd be particularly stupid if he was born in, say, 1957. Because <laughs> yeah. then, you know, claim to have discovered evolution, no, you missed the boat there. The window's <laughs> shut. There must be quite a lot of people, though, who came up with brilliant ideas in advance of the person who did it and kind of got most known for it. That must be quite common. The thing is, is it, is it possible that we, the English, because Darwin is English, we want to believe that he's the father of evolution? No, but what you could argue is what Darwin argues, which is that it is survival of the fittest. So, therefore, <laughs> Darwin, being British and therefore the most fit, was able, <laughs> was able to be the person who survived. Did he say the survivor of the British? And he's been misquoted. <laughs> I've never heard any credit given to Lamarck. It's a bit like the way Ant and Deck have never really acknowledged their debt to Pinky and Perky. <laughs> very similar. Lamarck. Has he got a claim to be the founder of evolution? Freddy has. Freddy has, you know, because he, he was earlier. He was early. He was born in. Uh, 1744, died 1829, and Darwin was born in 1809. So pretty Ooh. much, so Darwin was much later. And the problem is, Lamarck's got these theories. So he's this biologist, he's this botanist in the gardens. He is head of worms. He doesn't really go travelling. He's of head worms. of worms. <laughs> head of worms at the National Gardens. He also worked for I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. That's <laughs> <laughs> a chef. So the Royal Botanical Gardens, he's head of worms and head of insects, and he's got other things, like he's the first person to realise that spiders aren't insects, so there's a lot to his you know, name. God, that's a big yeah, one. That's it's a, a big, big one. one. So he goes, doesn't really go travelling, but he sits and he looks at his worms, he looks at his insects, and he thinks about evolution, because obviously insects don't last very long, so you can have a good look at their short lifespan. So he comes up with this, the idea, his evolutionary idea is a bit different to Darwin. So what he thinks is that, say, you've got a giraffe, and the giraffe has to reach really high to get his leaves, so that his neck gets longer and longer throughout his life, and then he passes that on to his giraffe babies. Mm. And so they have longer necks. 
So it's this kind of lucky uh, evolution. But, but isn't that what Darwin thought? No, Darwin's a bit different. Darwin thinks that there's random characteristics that are spread out throughout the giraffe family. And it happens to be those that happen to have longer necks they have more children because they're a better breeder. So it's a random selection, not passed down. It's not meant to be. So there's a kind of subtle difference. So Lamarck thinks that the giraffes learn to get bigger necks during their lifetime and they learn that that's the best way to be and that they pass this down. During their lifetime? So they during their learn lifetime, to get bigger their, necks? Their necks get longer. Mm. So really? Can, yeah, their necks Can I learn neck. to get bigger parts of my body? <laughs> <laughs> So, and that's his idea, but unfortunately everyone pretty much mocked him during his lifetime. They thought his ideas were a joke. I know, we've got some sad souls here. So everyone laughed at him, thought these were pretty ridiculous. And he died in utter penury. He was so poor when he died that he died in a rented grave. A rented rented grave? grave. (laughs) Who was paying the rent? Who was the landlord? God. Well, he couldn't afford to buy one. So from the churchyard, the state couldn't afford to buy one, so they just rented one. So I go, what happens with the rented grave? Do the bailiffs move in yeah. after a while and say, come on, we're having this coffin back, come Do on. Do you not have squatters' rights? They dig you <laughs> yeah, they dig you. If, you. if you can't pay the rent, they dig you up and take you out and really? give it to someone else. So he well, couldn't I mean, he should have learned how to get some money yeah, before the march was done. You know, what he did get is he, he got a bee named after him. A and bee? a jellyfish. A bee and a jellyfish. Yeah. No, I, um, I'm still not clear whether he can actually claim to be the founder of the theory of evolution or not. It's sort of a theory of evolution. Mm. We think there's only one. Are his theories, are they any more respected now? Well, Darwin actually was the first one to really respect them. So he said Lamarck was the first man whose conclusions on this subject excited attention. Oh, well, that's fair. Yes, so so he he acknowledged his previous sources and then stole everything. But Darwin was different because he thought it was survival of the fittest. But actually... Nowadays, the modern scientists, they think that evolution is actually closer to what Lamarck said, the idea that genes can be passed on expressing himself, yeah? (laughs) Anyway, what I think I've learned from this is uh, Lamarck is actually as a fair claim to that title, the founder Mm -hmm. of evolution. And uh, how often we, you know, we we are so parochial, we look at our own heroes, but he sounds like he he was a a mighty man. I'm going to... I'm not going to look into it because I find science tedious, but if you're listening and you don't, do. (laughs) And now a round I call I See Dead People, in which we look at dead figures from history who are still overground. This week, the legendary racehorse Farlap, whose skin is in Melbourne, his skeleton is in Wellington, and his heart is in Canberra. OK, it's a bit messy, but he makes three times more money on the personal appearances circuit. <laughs> yeah, so um, historical animals is a whole different field, isn't it? How many, how many famous animals from the past do you know? There was that pigeon that uh, was a spy in World War One. What was he, what was he, he called? <laughs> what was he called? What was he called, yeah. David. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was his real name, no. though. No, that was, he couldn't use what, his real name. I don't name. know what he was called. I yeah. think that was just his spy name. Let me tell you about Farlap. I, I mean, you've been to Melbourne. Have you been to Melbourne, Emma? Uh, no, never been to Australia. I have been to Melbourne, but I don't, never heard of Farlap. If you go to the museum there, there is this very beautiful racehorse. He was, he was a big star, successful. I mean, just like he was a legendary horse. And I thought, well, there, there's the horse. There is not a mark on it. So the fact that they got the skeleton out Without any signs of stitching, or I found very perplexing. Yeah. And have you ever seen that magic trick 
when they, they take a man's shirt off while he's still wearing his jacket. Yeah. Yeah. I think it must have been done yeah, like, that. like that. Yeah. Why is it split into three? Is it like a ho- holy relics? I think because it was associated with these places and was held in such veneration, they didn't want one place to have it. I think it is couldn't probably... They put, couldn't they just put coasters on his hooves and just sort of, you know, taking him on tour? I thought you meant so it didn't mark the table. <laughs> So, but I, I haven't seen that many famous dead animals. I've seen very few, in fact. But we know a few. What about dogs? What about Laika? Don't oh, know who that is. don't get... Oh, I you don't think, know It Lyca breaks is. my no, heart. Like, Laika was the dog that was sent into space. Dead, I assume. Well, obviously. <laughs> well, no. Well, never well, might not to be. be fair to the Russians, they did leave the window open about... <laughs> <laughs> It's a shame, though, because I would go... If Laika was um, stopped somewhere, I would like to go and see Laika. So what about Farlap? Was he the greatest racehorse ever, or similar? He was probably the greatest racehorse ever, and he was cut off early. He died early, and we, it's all a mystery. And he was basically... He was killed off with a massive dose of arsenic in 1932. Oh, God. A massive dose. And, of course, in those days, arsenic was terribly common. Arsenic was a common tonic you give to horses everyone had it It was in the wallpaper all kinds of things but it was a much bigger dose than he'd had so there's a lot of suspicion was it natural was it not but my theory is is that actually it was the mafia who killed him off because he was winning too much and so all their bookies were failing they were losing loads of money so they've got to get rid of this horse it keeps winning so they needed him him they needed to put his head in frank sinatra's bed This amazing specimen. So the heart you were talking about—it's yeah. twice the size of a normal uh, horse heart. Normal horse hearts about three kilograms. This one's six kilograms. It's gigantic in this glass cage. It's really big. So he's this amazing physical specimen and uh, killed off early because he's just too good. So uh, what other? What about? Um, there's lots of famous horses. Bucephalus. Shergar. Still quite recent. Shergar. He's not up there with Farlap. Ah, now, was Bucephalus the horse of Alexander the Great? Yes. I, that, even I and knew And he was afraid that. of his own shadow. And Alexander, to train it, had to ride him into the sun. Well, Don't the ancient Greeks, I mean, they didn't use saddles and they, they wore short mini-dresses. So their relationship with their horse was much closer. <laughs> Uh, was it Copenhagen, Kate, who was Wellington's horse? Wellington's horse, Copenhagen. So when he died at the Battle of Waterloo, uh, Wellington went ballistic because he died and there was a hoof missing. So he got really cross. And then he really, you know when you like dwell on your anger? He, he was buried and everyone said, poor old Copenhagen. And then Wellington really dwelled and he was like, my horse. And he said, OK, that's it. Get him up. Um, I want to exhume my horse so I can get the rest of the hooves. So they exhumed the horse three months later and all the hooves were rotted. So Wellington went on this mission to find what had happened to the hoof. And finally, a servant fessed up and said, I stole it. And Wellington took it and then ended up making it into an inkwell. What an inkwell? Yes. Wow. An inkwell. And, and the Napoleon's horse, Marengo, his hoof ended up being a snuff box. Oh. God, and now horses just end up in lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Farlap. Well, I tell you what, I think I've learned that... Um, why the heart was separated if it was such a significant um, yeah, it's a big, organ. Big it's big-hearted. Big-hearted yeah. father. <laughs> yeah. So, well, time's up. Here endeth the lesson. Uh, thanks to Dr Kate Williams and our guest David Badil and Emma Kennedy. And thank you for listening. And the rest, as they say...
The Rest is History was hosted by Frank Skinner with Dr. Kate Williams. The guests were David Baddiel and Emma Kennedy, and the producers were Justin Pollard and Dan Schreiber. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4.